All right, let's go to Psalm 148. That's where we're going to park today. And um, we're actually going to finish today this little several weeks that we've done in the book of Psalms. And I'm going to ask you for next week, uh, we're going to make a kind of a gingerly transition over to the New Testament. Read, if you will, just a few chapters. Read the book of Galatians, kind of let that wash over your soul. And we're going to talk next week in uh, Galatians 3. Okay, so if you want to read that little book, it'll take you just a few minutes to read and certainly read the third chapter of Galatians. That's where we're going to hang out. By the way, I don't know what they've had in here lately, but there's a snack on the floor right here. If anybody, if anybody forgot to eat, there's breakfast right there. I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, I keep stepping on stuff and I think, what is it? It's a snack. That's what it is. Okay. Um, now, do you like receiving compliments? Would you rather receive compliments than criticism? <laughs> hey, it's interesting. I did a little reading this week. Do you know that, that compliments are received differently from women to men? Uh, uh, this is research. Who, who thinks to research this stuff? But okay, somebody does. Somebody does. Um, uh, social observers. How would you like to wear on your name tag? I'm a social observer. Sounds like a person that needs to be paid really well. Um, a social observer. Social observers tell us that men and women are not the same in this regard. Women generally like their compliments about who they are. You don't sweat much for a fat girl. You know, that kind of thing. Did I say that? I thought I just thought it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> things like, oh, you are so easy to talk to. Women just love that kind of compliment. Whereas us guys, John, don't use that, by the way, on anybody. You hear me? I see. Huh? <laughs> My Sunday school teacher said, yeah. Uh, uh, for men, on the other hand, prefer to be complimented about what they do. Now, that makes some sense to me as a guy. Uh, words that affirm their skills and their accomplishments. Um, you are so handy. Now, would you go fix this? You know, that kind of, yeah, you are so handy. You know, it's kind of that kind of thing. Um, so isn't it interesting? Ladies like to be complimented for what, who they are, and men like to be complimented for what they do. Now, what I'm going to say to you is that the Psalms offer both kinds of praise to God. Appropriately so. Praising him for who he is, what he's like, and what he does. Um, that's very, very important that we catch that. And uh, what Psalm 148 reminds me that, um, reminds you and I, that the rest of God's creation invites you and me to join it, them, whatever, in praising God. We're going to see some more evidence of that today. So, um, how, how are we to compliment God? Is that necessary? We're going to talk about that a little bit. And, uh, and the answer to that last question is, is, yes, it's necessary. Now, we've been talking about all these little books within the book of Psalms. We're in book five, which is the final book, uh, kind of spanning from Psalm 146 to the last Psalm in our Bibles, 150. Um, um, that Some people call this fifth book the praise conclusion of the book of Psalms because each of them begins and ends with, um, with uh, the phrase, praise the Lord, which, by the way, is often translated 
uh, it's kind of what we call a transliteration. Now, in my Bible, it's translated out. So if you go to Psalm 148 um, and you're reading the same Bible, it's going to say, praise the Lord. If you're reading some other translations, and even in the New Testament, sometimes it will be what we call transliterated. So the word is hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word. It doesn't even, and it's, it's kind of wonderful because it doesn't even pass through the Greek and get to the English. They just leave it. In the ancient Hebrew sometimes. So when you sing the word hallelujah or you read it in your Bible, that's a, that's a word that is in the form that it was originally said. Hallelujah. The yah part of that is God and the other part is praise. So uh, anyway, we've got that. By the way, um, Roger is certain that there is a devil and he sees him when he looks to the east uh, getting blinded by the sun. Is that what you told me, something like that? Okay, we're trying to fix that. <laughs> we're, we're trying to fix that. I love looking out at you and you're going, you know, to, to try to see me. Uh, we, we lowered the blinds today. We may be in trouble for that, but it didn't do a whole lot of good, did it? So sorry about that. I love the sun though, so we'll, we'll put up with that for this morning. Now, let's go to Psalm 148. And we're going to look at these verses that tell us about who we are to join in this complement of God. Uh, Steve, you got the mic over there? You read the first six verses for us? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Okay, let's begin with this little question. Who is to be praised? The Lord. It kind of repeats that several times here. So I got to kind of catch that, that the one worthy of all praise is God and God alone. The Lord, capital L. The word that's translated from Hebrew is not hallelujah, Steve. Okay. It's hallelujah, which is the beginning of Yahweh. Okay. Who is to be praised? It's the Lord God only who's deserving of our praise in this way. And um, it's interesting here. It also kind of answers the question, where does that praise come from? And so what you can put in your first blank there is the word dwelling. Praise emanates here from the place where God dwells. Isn't it amazing that those surrounding God in his heaven are uh, kind of surrounding him in this attitude, this um, uh, atmosphere of holy praise. Now, we're, as we go on, we're going to see kind of who is doing that, and then we're going to bring it back to earth. In verse 2, the praise is taken up by his angels, okay? The angels are praising him. Now, let's, let's go back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you a few places in the Psalms. Go to Psalm 103, which you'll find kind of uh, familiar. And we're going to go down to verse 20. Okay. That's going to use the word bless in my translation, but you can also use praise. All right. 
This is kind of a parallel expression. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the word, the voice of his word. Now here's the parallel. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Now what, what we've got to catch there, okay, is that sometimes that word translated hosts, okay, sometimes that word translated hosts is the word that we use for stars or heavenly bodies as well. Now see it in verse 2 back in Psalm 148. Praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. What we believe is that this is a parallel uh, passage. There's a, there's a lot of those in this in this particular chapter, in fact, where he just says the same things two times in succession, using two different expressions. Praise him, angels. Praise him, all you his angels. Praise him, all you hosts, all you his hosts. Okay? Now, you and I know that that word host can mean army in some places. It can also mean uh, the stars in the sky. But if you read on, it's pretty clear to me that he's probably going to address that next, the stars in the sky, the heavenly hosts. Okay? So that's kind of one of the ways we catch that. I put a couple of references on your outline. For instance, when, um, when the book of Hebrews um, talks about this, it will talk about the angels of being, as being ministering agents. And, uh, and it translates the word, the word host that way from the Old Testament in a couple, couple of uh, spots. We really believe kind of the next verse gives us the answer. The praise is taken up by his angels... But in verse 3, it talks about um, uh, other uh, heavenly bodies, uh, part of creation, also serving here um, uh, to praise him. Look at verse 3. Praise him, sun and moon. Now, wait a minute. We'll talk about that in a second. Praise him, all the stars of light. So there's the word host used for stars there, okay? So what I'm going to say to you, and I want us to look at a couple of spots here. These heavenly bodies serve as a witness to their creator, okay? I want us to look at a couple of spots. Uh, Steve, since you're still there, can I have you read 147.4 in just a minute? And I'm going to have you hand the mic. Oh, never mind. We're not quite where we need you, Larry. And then I'm going to have you hand it to Cindy. And Cindy, would you read 147, I'm sorry, 19, verse 1 through 4. And, uh, and then also read 89, 36, and 37. These are all Psalms, and they're talking about this idea of why the sun, the moon, and the stars were created. Now, okay, got to talk about that for a minute. If you watch the Discovery Channel, you're going to get one answer to that. Why were the sun, the moon, and the stars created? Why? All right, so they have... And the stars all have their constellations and, you know, all that stuff to kind of deal with. The Bible, though, says there is yet another reason for the heavenly hosts, for the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, now Steve, I ask you to read, I think, 147.4. Um, he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. So, does God know anything about astronomy? I think so. He knows them by name. If you try to name one, when you get to heaven, God might say, you know, you got it wrong. That one's supposed to be called that, okay? He knows them, but he's got them kind of cataloged. He's not surprised about what goes on in the cosmos, all right? 
Now, let's go on with this. Cindy, if you wouldn't mind to read the first four verses only of verse 19, of chapter 19, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. There their is work. no speech. Hang on just a second. There's, you catch that? They don't talk. Sun, moon, and stars don't talk. There's no speech. You know, you watch the beginning of the Star Wars movies. and got that thing that rolls. That doesn't happen out in the cosmos, okay? But the Bible says they speak words of praise to their creator. Interesting. Not words, but their presence. Go on, Cindy. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Okay, now if you'll jump to the other passage over in Psalm 80, what did I say, 86, 89, verse 30, I want you to hear especially verse 37, but let's get the context in verse 36, 89, 36, and 37. Well, it starts and says, I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. The idea here is that that which is in the heavens has been established by God and it's for a reason. Now, what I find interesting here, you don't have to look very far. You can read about it in the Bible itself, but you can certainly read it in ancient history. A lot of ancient cultures worshipped the sun or worshipped the moon or worshipped the star. Okay, you know, it's kind of... They chose these creations... To worship. Uh, if you were an Egyptian during the time of Moses, you would worship the sun, among other things. It's clear that the Bible is going after that thought here and saying, no, those are the creations of God. And besides their, cause, their kind of uh, astronomical function, they are there to bear witness to God. That's the word that goes in your blank. They are there to provide witness to God. Now, in what way could a sun or a moon or stars witness, having no words of their own, how do they witness to God? Every morning, have you yet woken up when it didn't become day at some point? They were talking yesterday on the Last night on the news about, uh, on the weather, about uh, sunrises getting earlier and earlier. But it still comes, right? Uh, Rhonda has gotten hooked on all these Alaska shows. And they will talk about dark winter. But yet there's still a pattern to all that. There's still a day and a night, even though at certain times of the year, uh, night is longer, much longer than day, and at other times of the year, day is much longer than night in Alaska. Okay, I don't really get how all that works, except I understand this kind of has to do with the rotation of the earth and all that kind of thing. But the truth is, the regularity of those things speak to the faithfulness of God. They provide, they pronounce praise on God. The fact that when you go to the ocean and the tides come in and the tides roll out and some scientist says, oh, that all has to do with the moon. Who put it there? 
the faithfulness of those things bear witness of God's power and strength and even his goodness. You know, if the sun got off just a little bit, if the earth's rotation got off just a little bit, we wouldn't be here. In a moment, we wouldn't be here. I believe, and the Bible pronounces, that those things are not by accident. Now, in verse 4, uh, what's referenced here is kind of the highest possible location in the universe, wherever that is. It says here in verse 4, uh, praise him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Now, that's a kind of a confusing phrase. The best place I could come up with something parallel uh, is over in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, where um, Paul is talking about a guy who's, who supposedly was caught up into the third heaven. Now, evidently, there are levels of heaven. I don't really get that, but whatever they are, praise is emanating from the highest level of it. It's kind of the thought here. Uh, don't want to get in a huge... Um, uh, uh, thing over that, I mean, I have trouble. Uh, I have trouble when I get to an elevator that only has a one and a two button. I, I can't really figure all that out. But um, it's like, do I want to go? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll hit that one. And I, I mistake that a lot. A elevator down here that has two floors, I push the wrong button often. So I, I'm not the guy to talk to about this. But what I'm saying is, where whatever is the highest place in the universe. There is praise of God emanating from that place. Okay, in verse five and six, there's at least two re reasons here that are articulated for which to praise him. Let me read five and six again. Great, um, let them praise the name of the Lord. So it's talking about all those starry hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. Now, first of all, uh, basically, if you read places like Psalm 33, it's going to say God spoke it and it happened. We don't know how all that happened. We just know that God spoke it into exist existence. He said it, he spoke it, and it was done. And you and I back up and look at it and say, wow, that's part of this praise element. So the idea is that all creation is created to praise him. We're going to find that's a problem at, at some point in a little bit. All creation was put here to praise him. Okay? And he has kind of put those things there for praise. Now, the second idea, look at verse 6. He has established them forever and ever. He's made a decree which will not pass away. Basically, it's saying here that his decree is sovereign. God is in control. He created those things, and he sustains them in much the same way. Now, I, I read in the Bible, this is not in the Bible, but it kind, of, kind of, a lot of people have a little trouble with God's will and his sovereignty. So I thought I'd talk just for a little bit about the three ways God is kind of in charge. Okay, let's talk a little bit about God's will. I think what's being talked about here is what would be kind of known in theological terms as God's purposive will, okay? Referring to actions that God takes by his own decision, his own initiative. He's totally in control. But there's a second level of God's will, and that is second kind of God's will, and that's God's prescriptive will. That's referring to things that you and I read in the Bible and other things that God desires to happen, 
but that he will not defy human freedom to accomplish. Okay? Um, for instance, it's God's will, we read in Timothy, it's God's will for everyone to be saved. But you and I know that some reject that offer. Does God like that? No. So that would be called kind of God's prescriptive will. It's what he wants to happen, but he's not going to force it to happen. So God's purposive will, his prescriptive will, and then God's permissive will. That refers to things that he wants to happen, but he grants human freedom otherwise. The primary example here is uh, sin and evil. Things that men and women do to each other that God didn't prescribe. He didn't want that to happen, but he has a permissive will. Now what we see described here in verse 6 is what I would call um, God's purposive will, his sovereign will, if you may. Um, uh, It's the idea here that he creates and sustains all those things, kind of this idea of the ontology of God that, um, that we've got to catch. Now, we need to go to uh, go back to, to uh, Psalm 148. Larry, I'm going to ask you to read a little more than I first asked you to read, since you've got the mic sitting there. Okay, Go to verse 7 and read down through verse 12. Could you do that? In Psalm 148. Uh, 12. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all his hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth, and all nations, your princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. Okay, now, we've been talking about ontology. We've been talking about um, astronomy. We've been talking about the expanse of the universe and that praise emanates from as far as you can do up. Now what he's going to shift gears and say, go deep. Go deeper. Go as deep as you can go on this blue ball, our planet. As deep as you can go to the deepest place on the planet, he's going to say. And praise emanates from there. Now, what Larry read here in verse 7, um, Larry, I've forgotten what, what your, your passage said there. Mine says, sea monsters. What, what does it use in yours in verse 7? Somebody else got something different? What did it say? Sea creatures. I think it's funny that the New American Standard uses monsters. I think the word, and I didn't do the the research on this, but I think the word just means big. Okay, It's talking about something big. We talked a little bit last week about, and I gave you some dimensions of, for instance, uh, the largest animal on the planet in some ways is the great blue whale. And um, and I told you, Rhonda was telling me a story this week about some of her friends that went boating on a whale watch. You know, if I were going on a whale watch, okay, after reading how big those guys are, if I were going to go on a whale watch, I'd want to be on an aircraft carrier. 
What if whales don't just communicate with one another with that song? What if they're singing to their creator? I don't have any trouble believing that, you know? Because it says it right here in Psalm 148, verse 7. The truth is, I'm pretty sure that whoever wrote Psalm 147, we're not sure if it's David or somebody else, I'm pretty sure they had not done any deep sea diving and heard whale song. Pretty sure. But they know that all creation praises the Father. Now, verse 8 kind of helps me with something, you know, the, the Oklahoma weather. God reserves the right, according to verse 8, to manipulate meteorological phenomena. Okay? Look back a chapter at 147. Look at 16. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes wind to blow and the waters to flow. Well, I had lunch yesterday with Cliff Sanders. We have decided... As theologians, so again, you got to put this, he's a real theologian, I'm an armchair theologian, but, but I, I, I talk a lot about God at least, okay? Give me that credit. We've decided that evidently, okay, evidently, church rain is more dangerous than OU, OSU football rain, okay? Think about that for just a minute, okay? Church snow is much more treacherous than football snow. Okay? Do I have to make the connection for you here? All right? Now, blame that one on Cliff, okay? Because, you know, we'll, there'll be 90,000 people in the stands and the next day nobody at church. I don't really get that, but okay. <laughs> Surely God could figure that out and not make church rain so scary and dangerous, but okay. Uh, <laughs> the truth is here, uh, there is this part of his creation that he is yet sovereign over. Does that mean God causes ice storms that make my power go out? No, not really. But he's in control of these things ultimately. Larry, the book of Job, um, uh, Job is conjecturing in one place and God is answering in another place. In Job 37, you're going to read a couple of verses, then you're going to jump, jump over to 38. This is verse 5 and 6. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. Verse 22 and 38 says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? or seeing the storehouses of the hell. I like that kind of an interesting thought. God asked Job, okay, obviously you've been there. You remember the, if you've read the, uh, the book of Job, God gets a little bit funny right in the middle of it. After Job has asked God all these questions, God says, well, why don't you answer me some questions? You're obviously smarter than I am. I mean, and he, in 38, he refer, references, God does, the storehouse of snow. What a thought. What a thought. Or the storehouse of hail. This is um, 
Chris Tomlin, who, I, who Ron and I were listening to him some this morning as we were kind of doing our devotions and getting ready. He writes a song called, and I don't know if we sing this here or not, called Indescribable. Listen to the lyrics. They're really good. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea. By the way, it sounds to me like Chris was influenced by Psalm 148. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creation's revealing your majesty. From the colors of the fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming. Uh, he goes on to say, who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? Or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? There's that thought from the book of Job that, that I just read. Who imagined the sun and gives source to his light, yet conceals it to bring the coolness of night? None can fathom it. Here's the refrain. Indescribable. Uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You're amazing, God. All-powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. Can you see how that was kind of plucked right out of Psalm 148? The storehouse of snow. Now, I don't really believe that, okay, I really don't believe there's some storehouse somewhere where all the snow is kept. I, I, I get meteorology somewhat. Okay, I live in Oklahoma for crying out loud. You've got to get meteorology a little bit. We're bombarded with it 75 times a day. But isn't it interesting? The thought is that those things have no power over God. Um, he is ultimately the creator, and we ought to praise him accordingly. Now, I could go somewhere real political here, and I won't. So here we go. Okay. Uh, I, I did write in my notes. Do you suppose that God is um, perplexed by climate change? Okay, I'll just let you answer that yourself. Okay. Now, verse 9. Mountains and hills, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Now, it's talking about these things that praise him. We talked a little bit last week about how the mountains praise him. It's like, how did that get there? Well, God must have had something to do with that. But then it talks about two sorts of trees here. You catch this in verse 9? It says fruit trees and cedar trees. Now, and think a little bit about this. What's the difference? And it's using, by the way, a, um, a literary uh, um, technique here called merism, where it uses extreme to extreme and what it's saying is everything in between that and everything in between so it says fruit trees and cedar trees now what's the difference well one thing you don't get fruit from cedar tree those little berries okay. it's talking about cult the cultivated tree and the natural or wild tree so it's saying even trees from one extreme to the other bear praise to their father. So the expressions here indicate two extremes that include everything in between. So this kind of tree praises him, this kind of tree praises him, and everything in between. And you get the same kind of idea in verse 10. It talks about um, beasts and cattle, creeping things and winged fowl. So it's talking about wild things and, um, and domesticated. So you can put the words, the pray, this praise, comes from domesticated and untamed animals. Another merism there. And look at verse 12. It shows about, it talks about their extremes in age using another merism. Look at it. 
both young men and virgins, old men and children, and everything in between. That's kind of the gap that's left there. Um, are called to and offer praise to uh, the king, to the creator. Back up to verse 11, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth. So we've gone from the highest heavens to the lowest sea, and we've said we've come full circle here. Those created in the image of God himself are also called to praise him. Who's that? You and me. I heard a sermon a couple weeks ago. A young fellow that's really smart. And he basically pronounced the um, conclusion that the church was dead. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Um, and he had a lot of research backing that up. And I sat there kind of squirming in my seat. Now, let me give you some, some research here. Western culture, once nominally Christian, was once nominally Christian, but that's no longer the case. This kind of thing this fellow was talking about. These days, we're hearing about um, two, two classes of people, uh, the nuns and the duns. The nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, are the one in five Americans who have no religious affiliation of any kind. Never have. None. The figure is one in three among those under 30. Does that scare you like it does me? One in three of those under 30 have no religious affiliation. If that weren't sad enough, the latest grouping of the irreligious to emerge in this survey are called the Duns. D-O-N-E-S. These are people who were involved in church at one time, but have decided they don't want any more of organized religion. The emergence of the nuns and the duns has some observers predicting the death of the church as we know it, between the nuns and the duns. Without doubt, you and I would agree that Western culture as a whole is not praising God in numbers as great as in times past. But what the Bible is telling, here, telling us here in the 148th Psalm is that even though fewer of us are, all creation still is. Now, I left something out of your outline, so let me finish it. Here's the, the kind of the ending section here. What this should say, how sad is it? How sad it is when the only part of God's creation, who fails to acknowledge its creator, is the part created distinctly in God's image. You were created specifically, you were built specifically to live and honor and speak words of praise to God. Rhonda and I were talking about dogs that we've had in the past. I know you're a dog guy. But none of my dachshunds ever really praised Jesus. Uh, maybe they were trying, I don't know. You think, but some were, okay. But you were given a voice and language to do that. Isn't it tragic that the only ones of us that were created, all of God's creation, highest heavens to lowest sea, created the language to sing back to him. Often we choose 
Here's my challenge. When you leave here and go to church, there or there or wherever you go, you're going to be given opportunity. They're going to put, a, put nice music underneath this. And you're going to be given words that somebody else wrote that most of the time rhyme. That will put, vo- put words in your mouth to praise God. On Monday morning, when there's not an orchestra or a band around, you can pull out Psalm 148 or Psalm 150 or Psalm 136. And the psalmist will put praise words in your mouth. Just read them back to God. All of his creation praises him. I defy you to prove to me that there's a part of the creation that is not offering praise to him. Join the song. We just join the song. Okay, we're going to bridge over to Galatians 3 next week. I'll meet you there, okay? See you next week.